I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. Coming up, new results on the impact of pesticides on honeybees and colony collapse disorder. And we will also hear from a nuclear physicist slash beer brewer who may have the key to improving both local weather forecasts and global climate models. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Last Wednesday and Thursday, March 28th and 29th, scientists, government managers, and the public attended the Rocky Mountain National Park Research Conference. The first such gathering began in 1997, and since 2002 it has been held every other year. This year there were about 40 presenters and a dozen posters. Topics ranged from log jams to the public perception of rest stop to solid waste bags, nitrogen pollution in the land and water, and mountain pine beetles also received attention. One session focused on international conservation. Rocky Mountain has a sister national park, Tatras, that straddles Poland and Slovakia. Researchers from Colorado Universities, the National Park Service, Tatras National Park, and the Slovak Academy of Sciences shared their research. Citizen scientists are key members of the Rocky Mountain research community. Rich Bray and a team of volunteers have been studying butterflies in the park for over 15 years and have confirmed dozens of new species. Rich emphasized how important it is to look at long time scales. Southern Rocky Mountain Parnassian up there, now, we thought we'd lost it. We went two years up there without seeing it on our transect. Uh, and then wham, uh, all of a sudden, there it was, and in greater numbers than ever. There are more opportunities for you to experience firsthand the science of Rocky Mountain National Park. This year, on August 24th and 25th, the park and the National Geographic Society will be hosting a BioBlitz. The public will be able to join scientists to find and identify as many species of plants, animals, and other organisms as possible. More information can be found at nationalgeographic.com slash explorers projects slash bioblitz. March set a new record. Students savored the high temperatures during spring break, but many scientists and others felt less sanguine. It was the warmest and driest March in recorded history. Researchers at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder called it meteorological March madness. For much of the country, it looked and felt a lot more like June. Whether human-induced climate change or natural causes are the culprit is a vexing question. According to NOAA, over 7,000 daily record high temperatures were broken across the U.S. from March 1st the 27th. Normally, such high temperatures don't arrive until summer solstice. Throughout the U.S., many more record highs than lows are being set at weather stations, an indicator of a warming climate. So, is there a connection between the spring heat wave and climate change? Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the United Nations body that issues periodic updates on climate scientists, released a report confirming that a strong body of evidence 
links global warming to a rise in heat waves, as well as an increase in incidences of heavy rainfall and more frequent coastal flooding. Many scientists are pointing to the Arctic for clues. They theorize that the loss of Arctic sea ice is affecting the atmospheric circulation on a large scale. But a new computer analysis conducted by NOAA researchers did not confirm that declining sea ice in the Arctic is having a widespread effect outside the Arctic. And most likely, new theories, along with new temperature records, will be set in April. Thanks to Susan Moran for that report. And in the upcoming science calendar, next Tuesday evening in Denver, the Colorado Café Scientifique will be presenting a discussion titled Thoughts as Things, Placebo Effects in the Brain Systems that Regulate Pain and Emotion. The guest speaker will be Tor Wager, Director of the Cognitive Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Colorado. He will discuss the widely held belief that the contents of thought, and in particular, the meaning ascribed to situations and events, can influence health in important ways. But how and where are such thoughts formed in the brain, and what are their effects? Can simply believing in a treatment reduce pain, or even change your physiology? Would it be ethical to fool patients, even if it meant a possible benefit to them? Dr. Wager will discuss the emergency neuroscience of belief and its effects on brain and body. The discussion starts at 6.30 in the Mercantile Room at the Wincoop Brewing Company on the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Denver. The Café Sci is free and open to the public. The Colorado Café Scientifique is organized by an informal group of faculty from CU and institutions up and down the Front Range, as well as science fans from industry, government, and elsewhere. They welcome your input, including ideas for speakers and topics. Bring them with you to the next cafe or email them and any questions to john.cohen at ucdenver.edu. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Two studies published last week in the journal Science make a strong case for beekeepers who worry that a new class of pesticides called neonicotinoids hurt honeybees and bumblebees. In recent years, honeybee populations have rapidly declined, in part due to a phenomenon known as colony collapse disorder. Bumblebee populations have been suffering as well. Researchers have proposed many causes for these declines, including pesticides, but it's been unclear exactly how pesticides cause damage. Both of the new studies looked at the effects of neonicotinoid insecticides, which were introduced in the early 1990s and have become one of the most widely used crop pesticides in the world. One study from the United Kingdom shows that the pesticides reduce a bee's ability to store enough food and to produce new queens. In a second study, French researchers tied tiny radios to honeybees, then exposed them to low levels of the pesticides. A high number of the bees lost their sense of direction and died away from the hive. These two new studies add to concerns raised in January by a Purdue University study, which indicated that neonicotinoids persist as poisons in both plants and soil for much longer than thought increasing the chance of the pesticide to harm bees and other insects. 
despite the increasing number of studies calling into question the safety of these pesticides, the EPA has done little to restrict their use. Local beekeeper Tom Theobald told How on Earth's Shelley Schlender that when it comes to honeybees, these are dangerous pesticides. These are, are very insidious products, and you really couldn't design a worse pesticide. Just let me describe very briefly what these neonicotinoids are, what the science is revealing to us. They're water-soluble, which means that they are drawn up by the vascular system of the plant and transported to all parts of the plant. They are also uh, mobile in groundwater and surface water because they're water-soluble. They are persistent in heavy soils. In uh, Saskatchewan, they found that the half-life was 19 years. Now, if you extrapolate that, that means that we'll take those soils over a century to purge themselves of that chemical. What's equally important is we're finding that tiny, tiny amounts can have profound effects. And to make that even worse, Professor Hank Tenekes in Holland has found, and, and he's basing this in part on his 25 years of experience in cancer research, he's found that the effect these compounds have on the central nervous system of the insect are cumulative and irreversible. So not only will tiny amounts have profound effects, but tiny amounts over time are the equivalent to a massive dose all, of, all at once because, according to Tenekes, these are cumulative and irreversible. Well, you know, Tom Theobald, closer to home, there's the study from Purdue University Department of Entomology that was published in January this year indicating that samples of fields that don't have plants on them right now, samples of plants close to fields that have sprayed, been sprayed with these insecticides, samples in many places have these neonicotinoids in them, in the roots, and the flowers, and both, and more dead bees close to where there are traces of this toxic material. And it's not just staying on the field where it's been sprayed, and it's not just staying on the field for the time period that it was sprayed. What the Purdue study has done is it has affirmed many of the things that we have been saying all along. It's been the most widely read among the public, I think, but there are a number of other studies which have found had similar findings. This is not new information to those of us who have been paying attention to the effect of these chemicals, but this, this presents it in a more orderly uh, supportable fashion. There's another set of studies that has just come out that is talking even more about the ways that these neonicotinoids can be harming both bumblebees and honeybees. Again, we've known about the effect on the bumblebees for quite some time. I believe there was a study done about four years ago that concluded that four of the major bumblebee species were in steep decline with some of them approaching extinction. Um, and that's part of the broader effect of this family of chemicals because not only does it affect honeybees, it affects other pollinators, it affects any insects which come in contact with the commodity crops as a food source. 
Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that update from local beekeeper Tom Theobald about three new studies that show more strongly than ever that the new class of pesticides called neonicotinoids is harming both bumblebees and honeybees. If you'd like to hear the extended version of this interview, go to our website, howonearthradio.org. Listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Brianna Draxler. Predicting the weather is a tough job, and climate change is bringing unseasonal conditions that make forecasting even more difficult. But a monitoring device produced here in Boulder may be able to improve local weather forecasts dramatically. These radiometers work by creating 3D profiles of the moisture in the air, which is a key component for meteorologists and climate modelers alike. The devices are now being put to various weather-related uses around the globe. Stick Ware is the founder and lead scientist of the Boulder-based company, Radiometrics. He is also one of the founders of Boulder Beer. But since it's still a little too early in the morning for a beer, Stick is here in the studio with us today to give us the scoop on his meteorological monitoring devices. Good morning, Stick. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Happy to be here. So let's start with the basics. This radiometer looks kind of like a mailbox, but what exactly is it? It's a microwave receiver. All right. And what what does this receiver measure? It measures microwave energy, very tiny amounts, about a trillionth of a watt. Wow. It's pretty small. And it's measuring this in the boundary layer of the atmosphere. Can you tell us where that is exactly? Well, we reside in the boundary layer, and the microwave radiation actually comes from the entire atmosphere, but the mailbox is sitting in the boundary layer, so it's measuring in the boundary layer. Okay, and how high up does the boundary layer extend? Well, it varies. At nighttime, it can get down to a few hundred meters, and in the daytime, if the sun is shining, it can expand up to several kilometers. Okay, wow. So then you take these these temperature and moisture data, and you create a profile of this liquid structure in the air. What does this structure look like? Uh, We're immersed in a fluid uh, in the boundary layer. We all live in it. We don't think about it because it's invisible. But it's the piece of nature that we are most intimately connected to. If it's taken away, we die within minutes. It brings us pleasure and pain, and it's where weather exacts most of its economic and personal tolls. So in order to better understand the weather, we really need to know this layer. That's correct. And in fact, there have been uh, a number of reports recently out of the National Academy of Sciences regarding the importance of getting more measurements of the boundary layer for a variety of local high-impact weather forecasting applications. Okay, can you talk a little bit more about those applications? What can this do for local weather forecasts? Well, most of us probably know that uh, in the summertime, the forecasts uh, can be a little boring, 60% chance of afternoon thunderstorms. And what happens, uh, I've talked to the forecasters over at the Weather Forecast Office on Broadway, and they look at a thing called a radio sonde. It's a balloon that's launched at 6 a.m. from Denver, and it measures temperature and humidity and wind. And from that, they see a, uh, the amount of energy in the boundary layer, basically. And if it's large, uh, they say, well, 
when the balloon shows this large amount of energy, we typically have thunderstorms in the afternoon, but then they're blind until the 6 p.m. radio sound. There's only two launches a day at about 100 sites in the U.S. And so statistically, they say, well, if you've got this much energy at this time of the morning, this is how often you're going to have thunderstorms. And, of course, in the meantime, things can change. A front can come through, uh, various things can change it. And so it's very statistical and not that good for planning if you want to do a picnic. So we make similar measurements to the radio sound, only they're continuous. So it's like going from two photographs a day for a surveillance system to a video. Makes a big difference to have that much more data, I'm sure. So you had mentioned um, the, the radio sounds. And one of the other ways that a lot of the forecasts are done is using weather stations. What, what does this technology add to those? Uh, the weather stations, which have been around for a long time, the uh, Weather Service has a climate network that goes back 50 years. You probably see these at ranger stations, the little white boxes with louvers on them. And they have measured temperature, humidity, and pressure, and sometimes rain uh, for up to 50 years. But in modern times, there are what they call surface meteorological stations, surface met stations. The Weather Service has about 3,000 of these in North America. And a company that we are working with, Earth Networks, has about 8,000. And basically, if you have this information, uh, you can improve your local forecast. And that's the business that Earth Networks is in, is they can uh, take the... NOAA forecast and then refine it because they know right now what the surface measurements are, whereas the forecast might be based on data that's 12 hours old from a balloon. Mm -hmm. So you're partnering with Earth Networks to install some of these radiometers around the country, yes? That's correct. We announced a joint venture at the American Meteorological Society meeting in New Orleans at the end of January. And the initial part of the joint venture is to roll out 10 of our sensors in California. And one of the uh, major uh, customers will be the utilities. And in particular, they have a, uh, they like uh, to do load forecasting for electrical load. For example, in the L.A. Basin, uh, they want to know how much, energy is going to be needed 24 hours in advance and it's quite interesting they have a they have trading floors with hundreds of people working around the clock to look at the weather and everything else so that they can buy electricity on the on the spot market lock in a price for the next 24 hours now it turns out in the LA basin if you've ever flown in there that a lot of times it's duck soup and that's called the marine layer and at night it often flows in fills up the whole valley if it's thick, it doesn't burn off until late. Uh, not many people turn on their air conditioners, and the electric load demand is small. If it's thin, it burns off early, and you can have a scorcher. Now, I was there on the trading floor in September. We had just uh, They had just installed a radiometer at uh, LAX to measure the marine layer, and it's something we measure very well. And a, uh, there was a pyramid-shaped curve on a big flat panel display in the, in the, uh, on the trading floor, and that was the price they had locked in 24 hours before. And of course, the peak price was at the time of day when they thought it would be hottest and people would be turning on their air conditioners. 
Also on that screen was the actual price, and it turned out to be 10% lower. The marine layer was thicker than they thought. That 10% was costing them $800,000 an hour. Wow. And so the radiometer giving them the marine layer, they're very pleased with that measurement. And this brought it into a realm where they would prefer to buy data reliably with a contract. Uh, It's a distraction to them to have to set up equipment and hire contractors to maintain it and run it. So this opened the opportunity for Earth Networks to come in and talk about selling these weather-related data to the utilities. All right, so utility loads seem to be using them quite a bit. What other applications are using this technology now? Actually, uh, the utilities are using it for several other applications. Uh, One of the big ones is wind energy. And our instruments measure a temperature profile close to the surface. And meteorologists uh, call this uh, stability is something they derive from that. But the stability is closely linked to the hub height wind for a wind turbine. And so they use these measurements to predict the winds in a wind farm. And this is very important because wind is quite variable, and if you can't plan for it, you actually can't use it. And so the prediction of the wind is very important, and the radiometer is a a, a crucial measurement to get better predictions. Okay. So these are typically looking at local short-term weather phenomena. Is that correct? That's correct. So how can that be used locally here in Boulder? Well, uh, we were uh, actually talking with the Air Traffic Control Center at Longmont that does uh, air traffic control for Denver. And actually, I'd been knocking on their door for probably a decade, and nobody ever answered. And then last April, about a uh, a year ago, we put up on the web uh, a a thing called a SKU-T, and it's a, a... diagram that meteorologists are trained to use, and it has 42 standard forecast indices that are derived from radiosondes, and they spend four years learning how to use those. We put this up on the web, and instead of waiting for the radiosonde for 12 hours, it had a continuous radiometer drive, and so these were being updated uh, every minute. And all of a sudden, we got emails from the Air Traffic Control Center saying, We'd like to use this. This is great. We'll get better forecasts. They invited us out, showed us through the facility, and it was like night and day. And basically, I say it's like talking Polish to a pole. They knew the language. There wasn't a question of what's this new technology and how does it compare to a radio sound. It was, wow, I've got a video. That's fantastic. We've been speaking with Stick Ware, whose radiometers are being installed around the world to improve weather predictions and climate models. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker and engineered by Jim Pullen. Headline contributions by Jim Pullen and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Stevie Ray Vaughan. And we also heard a Polish folk song taken from a presenter's talk at the Rocky Mountain Conference. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 
447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Brianna Drexler. And I'm Joel Parker.